the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Show. Georgine Rice Show. Enunciate. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Today we're going to talk with Philip Lawler. He is a journalist and the author of The Lost Shepherd, How Pope Francis is Misleading His Flock. I'm not a Catholic, but he gives us a perspective into what's going on within the Catholic Church under the leadership of the current Pope, Pope Francis. We're also going to talk with Alana Simmons. She is the granddaughter of Reverend Daniel I. Simmons, or L. Simmons Sr., and he's, uh, she's the founder of Hate Won't Win. It's a, a movement that has uh, that swept across the nation following the the tragic uh, murder of nine uh, parishioners of a traditionally black church, uh, her grandfather being among them, her response to that and the response of other church members uh, spawned this new movement. She's going to be the keynote speaker at the 2018 Good Friday Breakfast. That's coming up, of course, on Good Friday, March the 30th at the Oregon Convention Center. It starts at 7 a.m. It's over about 845, so you can go to the breakfast and still make it into your office on time. We'll give you all the important details, and you'll hear a little bit of Alana's story. You're not going to want to miss that. On Good Friday. Finally, we're going to talk with Amy Venzel. She's a principal at Columbia Christian School. We want to paint a picture of what life is like at uh, Columbia and why students are thriving there. And this is part of our effort to bring uh, tuition savings to KPDQ listeners. Columbia Christian School is offering them as well. And you can find out more about that at listenersavings.com. Uh, but Amy Venzel will join us uh, in the five o'clock hour, the bottom of that. Uh, that hour. We are waiting to hear from South Korea and the president. It's not altogether clear what's happening, but what we are, what the rumors suggest is that Kim Jong-un is extending an invitation to meet directly with President Trump. Now, South Korea is expected to announce tonight, momentarily at this point, that North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un is extending an invitation to meet with President Trump. This is according to a senior U.S. official. Uh, but that announcement is expected at any moment. South Korean National Security Advisor Chung Yoo Yong uh, will also announce an upcoming meeting between between South Korean President Moon Jae-in and the North Korean leader, uh, according to uh, sources. Now, there currently are no plans to change U.S.-South Korean military exercises, nor is there a commitment by Kim Jong-un to stop his nuclear testing, although there's uh, rumored statements that he's saying that he would be willing to consider such a thing. Again, those are rumors. Uh, Chung, who met uh, at the White House on Thursday with National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, is expected to make the statement in the James Brady press briefing room at the White House, but it appears at this point it's going to be outdoors as uh, cameras are poised at, uh, at the site where many microphones and a podium are uh, are set up and they're literally waiting in a dark area for someone to appear 
But the announcement comes after hours of consultations at the White House between administration officials and South Korean officials over recent talks with North Korea. Now, the dialogue in North Korea concluded with an invitation to the United States to reopen direct talks with Pyongyang, saying it would suspend its nuclear uh, tests during such talks. Now, we talked yesterday about the fact in North Korea, what appears uh, what for us appears to be an opportunity to reset what's happening. It's an opportunity from the North Korean perspective to prepare for war or at least conflict. So it's not at all clear that what we are anticipating and what they're suggesting are the same thing. But Trump is expect an openness to the invitation, saying, as he often does, we'll see, but also uh, offered caution uh, earlier this week, saying, uh, that, uh, you know, we, we don't uh, we're not altogether optimistic about what, in fact, North Korea will do now just at this moment. And I don't have um, I don't have uh, closed captioning, so I cannot hear what's being said, but I'll report as quickly as possible uh, as uh, the announcement is right now being made from the White House from South Korea regarding the United States relationship with North Korea and an invitation that has purportedly been extended. Now, some people are suggesting that the president's announcement and today the uh, tariffs that he signed off on are, in fact, uh, part of the negotiations of trying to influence the actions of China, not just as it relates to uh, the uh, uh, to the tariffs and trade, but their role in uh, in North Korea and the timing may have something to do with what's going on. That's speculative uh, speculation at this point, but it's an interesting thought uh, given the announcement that's being made now. Uh, the national uh, South Korean National Security Advisor is speaking at this moment. We'll try to get the uh, text of that uh, shortly and let you know what uh, what is happening. Speaking of China, though, last week China announced that it would drop presidential uh, presidency term limits, effectively allowing current President Xi Jinping to serve indefinitely. It's a it's a reversal of what has been the case uh, since Mao. I, I, I should mention the leader is currently concluding his first five year term, one not particularly positive for the country's Christians. Well, during his time in office, a provincial government engaged in a multi year campaign to remove crosses from the tops of churches, the three self churches that are permitted to function under government oversight. And Xi suggested that uh, religions that inadequately conform to communist ideals threaten the country's government and therefore must become more Chinese oriented. Uh, last the Communist Party reportedly visited Christian households in Jiangxi province, forcefully uh, removing dozens of Christian symbols from living rooms, replacing them with pictures of Xi. So not just churches proper, but people's private homes as well, although private home may not apply in the People's Republic of China. In February, the government hit the faith community with another set of restrictions. Under these restrictions, religious groups had to gain government approval for any sort of religious activity, including using one's personal home for a religious practice, publishing religious materials, calling oneself a pastor, or studying theology. Now imagine for a moment that we were uh, under the same kind of strictures and what our practice of faith might look like. The government accepted the worst possible version of the restrictions, according to the director of the Center on Religion and Chinese Society at Purdue University. The government could have been more uh, um, pragmatic in its approach and treated this as a social management issue, uh, but in fact used the worst possible version. 
And that's a quote from Fengang Yan, again, the director of the Center for Religion and Chinese Society at Purdue University. He went on to say these restrictions are not it's uh, are, it's going to be very difficult or impossible to implement or enforce the restrictions. So it's a heavy hand, but very little enforcement apparently is possible. And just glancing up, the statement that was made is now concluded. And uh, all you can see are members of the press scrambling about, uh, apparently trying to get to where they need to go in order to report on what they've just heard. And we'll do that after the uh, uh, after the break here in just a few moments and try to provide you with what was announced. Nonetheless, Yang joined associate digital media producer Morgan Lee and editor-in-chief of uh, Chief Mark Galley at Christianity Today to discuss the roots of the government's anti-religion attitudes, how Christians are speaking out against these recent uh, term limits and the fledgling Chinese missions movement. I uh, recall that when I was in China, and it's been some years ago now, it was interesting that there were uh, young Chinese men and women who were preparing to become missionaries to the United States. Now, it seemed absurd to us at the time. First of all, how are you going to get there in order to do that? And they sort of laughed at us when we asked about visas and passports. They believed that, like Paul and Peter, if God was calling them, if he was sending them, that he would provide whatever was necessary for them to fulfill that calling. Uh, but also that they saw the need ahead of time, many years ago, that the United States would uh, need evangelists from elsewhere in the world uh, to remind them of the power of the gospel. In any event, um, uh, that's what's happening in the People's Republic of China as it relates to the church. Now, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, hopefully we'll have some information on the announcement made just moments ago by the South Korean uh, government regarding North Korea. Kim Jong-un is extending an invitation to meet with President Trump. Beyond that, we don't know many other details. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Also, later this hour, we're going to talk with Philip Lawler. He's the author of The Lost Shepherd How Pope Francis is Misleading His Flock. An interesting perspective into the um, Catholic Church. Well, as expected, the South Korean. Uh, National Security Advisor uh, announced that uh, the North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un has extended an invitation to meet with President Trump. And the president uh, is uh, planning to meet with Kim Jong-un in May. Now, the location was not yet made clear, but it's most likely going to be in South Korea. The National Security Advisor also announced an upcoming meeting between South Korean President Moon Jae-in and the North Korean leader. Uh, there are currently no plans to change U.S.-Korea military exercises, nor is there a commitment by Kim Jong-un to stop his nuclear testing, although... Uh, there was a statement made some time ago that during the negotiations, during that brief period where they're actually seated across from one another, there would not be nuclear testing. Earlier in the day, the president announced that South Korea would be making a major statement. They did that uh, just moments ago. Uh, and uh, the uh, uh, national security advisor from South Korea met at the White House earlier today with the U.S. national security advisor to make the statement uh, in the J James Brady press briefing room that was moved to a, a venue outside. Um, Chung and other South Korean officials briefed the White House earlier today on a potential diplomatic opening there. Apparently, the United States, the president, has accepted that opening, uh, cautiously optimistic. And as I mentioned earlier, there's some speculation that, in fact, the president's um, imposition of tariffs is a means by which he can perhaps influence China 
uh, to act more aggressively uh, with regard to North Korea. Now, whether or not that's the case, again, we're speculating, but it is interesting timing when all of this uh, falls out. In August, you might recall, the president warned Kim that if pressed, the United States would unleash fire and fury and, frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before, end quote. At the time, the president argued that Kim had been very threatening beyond a normal state, adding that the regime best not make any more threats to the United States. Threats and counter threats continued right into this year. The U.S. should know that the button for nuclear weapons is on my table, Kim said, going on from there. Well, the next day, the president hit back, claiming that the United States nuclear arsenal was more powerful. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un just stated that the nuclear button is on his uh, desk at all times. Um, And uh, again, back and forth. But the president is, according to uh, this announcement made just moments ago by the National Security Advisor from South Korea will result in the president meeting with Kim Jong-un at some yet-to-be-disclosed location to continue uh, talks regarding its nuclear program. As I mentioned, President Trump signed an order today that imposes tariffs on steel and aluminum imports from all uh, foreign countries, with the exception of Mexico and Canada, carving out an exception for them. Uh, it, uh, for now, while the North, uh, North American Free Trade Agreement negotiations are underway, giving himself, the United States, some leverage. The president, joined by steel and aluminum workers, signed a companion proclamation, one on steel and one on aluminum, instituting a tariff of 25 percent on steel, 10 percent on aluminum. Imports. The tariffs will become effective in 15 days with exclusions, as I mentioned, for Mexico and Canada taking effect immediately. You are truly the backbone of America. You know that. Very special people. The president uh, told the workers that uh, flanked him in that. Uh, Effort. We have to protect our steel and aluminum industries while at the same time showing great flexibility with people who are really friends of ours and made the the, uh, statement that the uh, tariffs are subject to negotiation by country. So uh, if, in fact, um, the United States is trying to push China in a particular direction, uh, the manipulation of the tariffs, the 25 percent on steel, 10 percent on aluminum might be one way to leverage uh, that uh, that kind of response. Vice President Pence. Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, uh, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, and U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer were uh, standing behind the president during his remarks in the Roosevelt Room at the White House. This is not merely an economic disaster, but it's a security disaster, the president said. Today, I'm defending America's national security. The U.S. is the world's largest importer of steel, importing nearly four times as much as it exports, according to the White House. The U.S. imported five times as much primary uh, aluminum as it produced in 2016. It's a process called dumping, and they've dumped more than any time on any nation anywhere in the world, and it uh, drove the plants out of business um, here in the U.S., the president went on to, uh, to say. The administration's move to impose tariffs came after a nine-month investigation led by Ross and interagency meetings from April 2017 right up until June of 2018, which found that the current level of aluminum and steel imports to the United States had the potential to threaten our national security. The president said the investigation documented a growing crisis in U.S. steel and aluminum industries, which he said have been ravaged. The steel industry have been ravaged by aggressive foreign trade practices and assault on our country. It's been an assault. They know better than anybody, Trump said. And I've been uh, talking about this uh, for a long time, longer than my political career. The president blasted politicians, noting they never did anything about it. Our factories were left uh, to rot and to rust all over the place. Thriving communities turned into ghost towns. Uh, Not any longer, Trump said. The workers who poured their souls into the building of this great nation were betrayed. But that betrayal is over.
Inflation is one of the things that critics are suggesting they're they're greatly concerned about uh, and would likely be the result. We'll see whether or not the president's uh, tactic is more successful than it's ever been when tried previously and if this is going to be an exception. Meanwhile, the U.S.-China trade deficit set a record in January at $35 billion. Uh, and uh, sort of uh, making the point the president attempted to make uh, in this effort. Meanwhile, the Florida House passed a school safety bill yesterday that includes new restrictions on rifle sales and a program to arm some teachers, sending the measure to the governor for his signature. The vote of 67 to 50 reflected a mix of Republican and Democrats in support and opposition of the measure. The measure, a response to the shootings, of course, at a Parkland High School that left 17 dead, is supported by the victims' families. Andrew Polak, who lost his 18-year-old daughter Meadow in the in the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting, and Ryan Petty, who lost his 14-year-old daughter Elena, said there was enough good in the bill that it should pass, and it did. More needs to be done, and it's important for the country to be united in the same way the 17 families united in support of this bill, Polak said after the vote. My precious daughter Meadow's life was taken, and there's nothing I can do to change that. But make no mistake, I am a father, and I'm a, on a mission. I'm on a mission to take sh- to make sure, rather, that I'm the last dad to ever read a statement of this kind. Well, Democratic Representative Jared Moskowitz, a former Parkland City Commissioner, ended the eight hours of debate with an emotional account of seeing the high school after the shooting, attending victims' funerals, working with students and families while the House was forming the legislation. He broke down in tears after talking about how his four-year-old son, writing, uh, son's writing teacher, rather, lost her daughter in that attack. Uh, You don't need to stand with me. I don't need you to stand with me. I need you to stand with the families, Moskowitz said. Democratic Representative Kristen Jacobs said that she didn't like the idea of arming teachers, but she voted yes. Republican Representative Jay Fant said raising the minimum age to buy a rifle from 18 to 21 was unconstitutional, and he voted no. It's 29 minutes after 4 o'clock when we uh, return. We're going to talk with uh, Philip Lawler. Uh, He is a journalist and well-known within Catholic circles. He's written a book that he says was very difficult for him to write. The book is titled The Lost Shepherd, How Pope Francis is Misleading His Flock. And uh, Mr. Lawler uh, reviews the impact that uh, the pope has on the church, which raises from a Protestant's perspective some interesting questions about the relationship between the pope um, and the church and what can and cannot be challenged, given their understanding of his role. So we're going to talk with Philip Lawler. He's the editor of the Catholic World News. He's one of America's most incisive Catholic journalists and commentators. He'll join us in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, a faithful Catholic, says faithful Catholics, Catholics rather, feel betrayed by Pope Francis. He has led them from joy to unease to alarm as he appears to undermine the perennial teachings of the church on marriage, sex, and the Eucharist. As fundamental doctrines of morality come into question, it's impossible to pretend that Francis represents merely a change in papal style. In his latest book, Lost Shepherd, How Pope Francis is Misleading His Flock, one of America's most experienced and incisive Catholic journalists, Philip Lawler, explains what's at stake, what's not at stake, and how the faithful Catholic should respond to this turbulent papacy. A hopeful admirer turned reluctant critic, he provides a sober assessment of the crisis in the Catholic Church. Lost Shepherd, how Pope Francis is misleading his flock, sounds an alarm. 
Uh, to loyal Catholics, he'll find the book profoundly encouraging. The church teaching is constant, he says, and if the bishops of Rome obscure the faith, the other bishops must clarify it. Well, it really is a fascinating look at some of the uh, uh, the challenges that are currently being considered. Philip Lawler is the editor of the Catholic World News. He's one of America's most incisive Catholic journalists and commentators. He's a graduate of Harvard College. He has been the editor of Crisis Magazine, the Boston Pilot, and Catholic World Report. He's the author of The Faithful Departed, The Collapse of Boston's Catholic Culture, a penetrating analysis of the scandals that brought the church to its needs in America, and co-author of A Call to Service, Pope Francis and the Catholic Future, uh, published in 2013. The father of seven, grandfather of 12. He lives in central Massachusetts with his uh, wife, a popular Catholic blogger. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, let's let's talk about Pope Francis. He came uh, to his role in a rather unconventional way as the, the pope um, that preceded him decided to step down. How unusual was that? And does that play in in uh, to the, the controversy at all of the leadership that he has exhibited up to this point? I don't know that it plays directly into the controversy, but it was uh, completely unprecedented. Pope Benedict was the first Pope to resign in about 500 years. I'd have to look it up. To, it's, it's since before I was born, anyway. And uh, the first Pope ever to resign when he wasn't under pressure of some sort. That is, uh, every previous resignation was someone whose, whose title to be Pope was contested in one way or another, which was not the case with Pope Benedict. So that was the first shock, was the resignation of a sitting Pope. Um, and then Pope Francis came on the scene and was, I think most people would agree with me, a breath, a breath of fresh air and energy and uh, a style that captured people's attention. So at first, it was a very exciting time. I found quite a few of my friends were uh, talking about the faith for the first time in years. Uh, and that was the reason for my enthusiasm as well. And it, it took me quite a while to... Uh, realize that that enthusiasm was probably misplaced. You write in uh, Lost Shepherd that within the Catholic Church, the authority of the Roman pontiff is considerable, but even papal authority, and essentially papal infallibility, has its limits. Explain what those limits are in challenging the direction that the Pope has taken, and then we'll talk perhaps more specifically about what the, uh, what the controversy is. Sure. I think a lot of people have the impression that the Pope can say or do whatever he wants, that he is an absolute monarch. And that's not the case. He does have, as I said, considerable authority, and everyone is aware of the Catholic belief that the Pope is infallible. However, infallibility is strictly defined. The Pope does not have the right to say whatever he wants on whatever subject he wants, any more than you and I do. He doesn't have the authority, I should say. He has the authority to speak on matters of faith and morals within the Catholic ambit and to define and explain what the Church has always taught and always will teach, because what the Church teaches doesn't change. It's handed down to us from the Apostles and from the Bible. Uh, So the Pope... Um, when he starts making his own comments, uh, expressing his own opinion, he's on his own. And the Pope's um, leadership is subject to the bishops? No, he's not subject to anyone, but his, uh, 
but except to God and to the Catholic tradition. But the, the office of the Pope is inherently conservative in the sense that he's given the deposit of the faith which is handed down to him, and it's his job to retain it and keep it intact. One of the things that you uh, point out is that the Pope cannot teach authoritatively by dropping hints. Is the, the core of the problem a lack of clarity, or is there a deviation from Catholic Church teaching, or both? I guess I'd have to say both. The controversy that we're talking about centers on the document called Amoris Laetitia, in which the Pope uh, spoke about marriage, family, divorce, remarriage, and the Eucharist. And the most controversial subject was whether Catholics who divorce and remarry are allowed to receive communion, and uh, which they never have been in the 20 centuries of Catholicism. And the big question was, will the Pope change that teaching? Well, he did not explicitly change it. Most of the people who read read that uh, document believe it was his intention to change the practice, but he didn't come out and say it, and he has resisted multiple requests from bishops and cardinals to clarify that. So you ask yourself, why would he not want clarity? And really the only reason that I can see why you would want a lack of clarity is if you want people to just go ahead and... Uh, do what they want to do and give them, as it were, a fudge factor. Mm. March 13th uh, marks the fifth anniversary of the election of Pope Francis. Uh, he has been called by um, uh, by some observers as uh, or, or his impact as uh, the Pope uh, as imposing the Francis effect. And the media depicts him as perfectly aligned with secular liberals on homosexuality, divorce, climate policy, other issues. Um, is that an accurate assessment of uh, of this pope, or um, does the secular uh, media misunderstand him because of a lack of clarity? I think more the latter. Uh, it's he's certainly not perfectly aligned with the secular uh, agenda, but it's not entirely a mistake uh, that people think that he has made great accommodations to secular thought. And I think that's because of the confusion that he has created and the sort of nods in that direction, that it's he's certainly not as clear uh, as Pope John Paul II or as Benedict XVI was in opposing some of the items on the secular agenda that are incompatible with the Catholic faith. So what would be the benefit of, of failing to clarify when there's some question about what's actually being uh, said, and what damage does that do to the church? The benefit, again, I think, is the only benefit I can see is to sort of see you give some ground to the secularists so that you avoid confrontation and you avoid controversy. Uh, and at the same time, you allow people the latitude to go ahead thinking as they do and behaving as they do in accordance with secular rather than Christian principles. And you asked, how does that divide the faithful? Well, there are some people who are holding to the the teachings and the disciplines of the Catholic Church, and at some cost to themselves. 
and feeling that the Pope has abandoned them, left them out to high and dry. And perhaps even more damaging, you have bishops in different places giving radically different, contradictory interpretations of what is required of Catholics. And so if the worldwide church is supposed to be unified, you you just can't have that sort of division. I was reading Christianity Today, and they were were reflecting on a Pew Research study that was just released this week. And it, it read, the Francis effect, a phrase used to describe the presumed positive impact of Pope Francis upon Catholicism, inspired a book, a podcast, a documentary. But it hasn't been enough in, uh, to inspire Americans to join the Catholic Church or even to encourage U.S. Catholics to go to Mass more often. And it goes on um, from there. Do you think that's a fair or an accurate assessment? And what impact has... Uh, has Pope Francis had generally first on the Catholic Church and then the broader culture? I think it is a fair assessment. I think, by the way, the the Francis effect, as measured in other ways, seems to have tapered off, too. There were huge crowds in St. Peter's Square for his weekly general audiences when he was first elected. That no longer is happening. In fact, the crowds in St. Peter's Square now are lower than in numbers than they've been in the last 25 years. Uh, I think it is fair to say that the bottom line for any pastor is, uh, is he attracting people to the faith? Is he bringing people closer to Christ? Is he, putting, is he putting people in the pews? And the Catholic Church, particularly in America and also in Western Europe, has in recent years uh, been experiencing a real decline and exodus of the faithful. And we need to turn that around. So that's why I was so excited at when the first uh, months of the papacy, because I thought he was perhaps going to turn it around. But five years in, the effect just isn't there. We're going to continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Philip Lawler. He is the editor of the Catholic World News, one of America's most incisive Catholic journalists and commentators. His latest book is titled Lost Shepherd, How Pope Francis is Misleading His Flock. The book is published by Regnery Gateway. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the book Lost Shepherd, How Pope Francis is Misleading His Flock. The book is published by Regnery Gateway, and the author is uh, Philip Lawler. He is a uh, the editor of the Catholic World News, one of America's most incisive Catholic journalists and commentators. You describe yourself as a reluctant critic, uh, but you write about the fact that the uh, the Pope, uh, Pope Francis is neglecting the reform of the dysfunctional Vatican bureaucracy and the resolution of the sex abuse scandals, devoting himself to um, instead to um, opening communion to divorced and, and married couples and, and other issues that would be considered of um, uh, perhaps of outside of, of what his focus ought to be. Your thoughts on that? Those thoughts they were getting when they elected Pope Francis, it's that they thought that they would be getting a reform of the Vatican a reform that would lead to more accountability and responsibility, particularly in the area of sexual abuse, but also in the handling of finances, because money is always a quick way to corruption. And those reforms just have not occurred in the five years of his pontificate. You um, also write about the, the Pope's proclivity to identify friends and enemies 
making troubling appointments to influential offices in Rome and, and throughout the world. Explain the impact that's having on the Catholic Church. Well, again, it's a question of opening up divisions and confusions in a sense that uh, everything is up for grabs, because the Pope has surrounded himself with advisors who have been extremely harsh and critical of anyone who is perceived to be less than enthusiastic about the Pope's agenda. And, in fact, he himself has uh, taken to... uh, denouncing people who disagree with him. He usually doesn't name names, but in his uh, sermons he speaks about the Pharisees and the doctors of the law, and uh, it's not too difficult to figure out who he's talking about. He's talking about those who disagree with him. So what what's the answer for those who are faithful Catholics um, in in? Uh, you know, who are waiting on a pope who has a lifetime appointment, what's the response for rank-and-file Catholics to um, what you describe as the lost shepherd? Well, I think that there are two things, or maybe three things, that every good Catholic should be doing. The first is praying for the pope and praying for the Church. Uh, The fact that he has been a source of confusion to date doesn't mean that he has to be forever. And second, in the context of that prayer, I think faithful Catholics should be faithful. That is, since these are confusing times, it's all the more important for all of us to stand up and be clear about what it is that we believe. Third, and finally, to demand the same of our pastors, and particularly of our bishops, to ask them to be firm and clear about what the Church believes, so that if there is confusion out there, it can be cleared up by a sort of groundswell, a grassroots effort. And I think that uh, the Pope would listen if enough bishops were clear and forthright and teaching what the Church has always taught, and thereby making it very evident to the people that the, the faith is not going to change. That would be a tremendous consolation, I think, to people who are worried now that they feel at sea. Now, what's the role of the of the local pastor, if you will, the the priest, the leading of the local church, um, in clarifying the Pope's position that seems to drift away from historic Catholic teaching uh, during this interim period? What what's the role that they play in influencing and teaching in the church? Just as I say, that they can be clear uh, where there is confusion, they can try to bring clarity by teaching what the Church has always taught, what previous popes, popes have taught. And, you know, you're not going against papal authority if you're relying on the teaching of a previous pope. That's, that's an exercise of papal authority as well. So to be clear in their teaching and not dodge issues so that the faithful are uh, comforted and have the confidence in what the Church has has always said. As I mentioned earlier, the Pew study indicated that um, Catholics have not found themselves returning to the Church and new converts have not come into the Church. Uh, What is your thoughts about um, the impact this is having on Um, spreading the Catholic Church around the world under this Pope? It's much harder to spread a faith if people aren't 
clear and convinced on what that faith is. And I think it's a mistake uh, to believe that if you make these things simpler for people in the sense that you... Uh, you minimize the differences between Catholicism or Christianity more generally and the secular culture. If you play down those differences, that the faith will be more attractive to people. I don't think that's the case at all. I think the more demanding you are, the more people are excited by it, because uh, faith is born of ideals, and, and uh, people want to set high standards, and they want to believe that uh, they can do more... That, it, that they respond when a lot is asked of them. So the, the traditional teachings and disciplines of the Church, I think, are more likely to bring converts and to keep the people who are currently in the pews. Now, the title of your book is Lost Shepherd. Uh, you've already indicated that the Catholics uh, should be praying for the Pope, and what's occurring now doesn't have to be what occurs for the remainder of his uh, of his tenure. Are you optimistic about the Catholic Church? In the long run, I'm very optimistic. I, I mean, uh, I think that, uh, you know, anyone who's, as we say, who's read the, read the book to the end, we know how it ends. In the short run, I think we're going to go through a real period of turmoil, and it will take probably years to clear it all up. Well, I I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us. Once again, the book is titled Lost Shepherd, How Pope Francis is Misleading His Flock. The book is published by uh, Regnery uh, Gateway. And again, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for having me on. All right. We're going to take a break here in just a few moments for news at the top of the hour. And I know some of you are wondering, well, why are you talking about uh, the Catholic Church? I'm not converting to Catholicism. I'm not encouraging people to join the Catholic Church. But I did think it was interesting to see what's going on within the church, the challenges that those who are faithful Catholics um, are facing, in particular as it relates to the Pope, who from the vantage point of Protestants like myself is is the uh, infallible uh, head of the church. Um, he descri- defined it in a way that uh, suggests that the Pope uh, is not entirely infallible. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I thought it was an interesting perspective from someone inside the church who is a faithful Catholic, who is a reluctant critic, uh, to explain uh, some of the controversy swirling uh, within the Catholic Church. So anyway, I'm, I'm a Protestant and I will remain one as well. Okay, coming up, we're going to uh, share a little bit of for the day's news. As you may have heard, there was an announcement from the South Korean National uh, Security Advisor regarding the United States relationship with North Korea. We'll try to bring uh, those of you who joined us late up to date on that. We're also going to talk with Alana Simmons. She's the granddaughter of Reverend Daniel L. Simmons, Sr. She's the founder of Hate Won't Win. Um, It's a movement that uh, followed the Uh, the tragic death of nine who were shot while worshiping at a Bible study in their church. We'll talk with her. We'll also talk with the principal of Columbia Christian School. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. As I mentioned, uh, not too far into the four o'clock hour, we heard from the South Korean National Security Director or someone of that ilk uh, announcing that uh, there had been a conversation with the North. There had been a conversation with the United States. And we learned uh, earlier today that President Trump will accept an invitation by North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un to meet Uh, The White House has now confirmed that Uh, it was a dramatic development. Months of uh, saber rattling between the two world leaders 
has led to this. Now, whether or not this indicates anything of substance, one doesn't know. But Kim extended that invitation to meet with the president of the United States, and the president agreed that the two would meet by May, the South Korean national security advisor announced at the White House, saying President Trump greatly appreciates the nice words of the South Korean delegation and President Moon. Nice words of President Moon. Um, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said he will accept the invitation uh, to meet with Kim Jong-un at a place and time to be determined. We look forward to the denuclearization of North Korea. In the meantime, all sanctions and maximum pressure must remain. Well, earlier in the day, uh, the South Korean National Security Advisor announced that uh, the president would meet with Kim to continue the uh, goal of denuclearization. Kim uh, Chung said, expressed his eagerness to meet with the president as soon as possible. The president appreciated the briefing, said he would meet Kim Jong-un by May to achieve permanent denuclearization. So apparently that's the point. Um, at least that's what the point is uh, being announced as wasn't said very well, but you get the idea. Kim, according to Chung, understands that joint military exercises between South Korea and the U.S. will continue. The North Korean leader, according to recent talks with Chung, also claimed to be committed to denuclearization. Now, that comes as something of a surprise. You'll recall the day before the start of the Winter Games in South Korea, there was a show of force, and the announcement was made several times over throughout the day that North Korea had no intention of abandoning its nuclear ambition. Well, Kim pledged that the North Korea, uh, that North Korea rally, rather, will uh, refrain from any further nuclear missile tests, which is a different thing, at least during the uh, during the summit. Chung said, adding that Trump's leadership and maximum pressure brought us to this juncture. Well, Chung also said, and again, this is South Korea's uh, national security advisor, uh, said that along with President Trump, he is optimistic of uh, continuing diplomatic process. But he added that the pressure will continue until North Korea matches its words with concrete actions. News of the willingness of Kim to meet with the president follows recent high-profile talks between North Korea and South Korea. Earlier in the day, the president announced that South Korea would be making this major statement about the North at about 7 p.m. Eastern time. It came a little after 4 o'clock our time. Chung met with the White House earlier in the day with National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, and the president made the announcement in his first ever visit to the press briefing room, uh, briefly popping his head into the room to update reporters. Well, South Korea's uh, national security advisors and advisor and other officials briefed the White House on a potential diplomatic opening uh, after a year of escalating tensions. And Chung told reporters that he had received a message from the North intended for the United States, but did not disclose, disclose at that time what it was. Well, the announcement comes after hours of consultations at the White House between administration officials and South Korean officials over these recent talks. The dialogue in the North uh, concluded with an invitation to uh, the United States to reopen open direct talks with Pyongyang, saying it would suspend its nuclear tests during such talks. So suspending nuclear tests, period, is not what was said during such talks, is what the full statement uh, said. Trump has expressed an openness to the invitation, saying, we'll see. Well, Trump and Kim have had a contentious relationship, as you know, during these last uh, this last year, as both men dramatically increased the rhetoric against the other with the uh, backdrop of increased nuclear and missile testing by the North Korean regime. Uh, this was an unusual response from the United States, and uh, perhaps uh, Kim is taking seriously the threats made by the president and the escalation, which uh, the North certainly could not uh, sustain. The U.S. should know that the bottom, uh, the button rather, for nuclear weapons is on my desk, Kim said at the time. The president uh, responded and the back and forth went back and forth until today when the announcement was made that the two men at some point before May, this being 
early uh, March, uh, are going to sit down in the same room across the table from one another and accomplish what we don't yet know. But this certainly is an historic moment, unprecedented, uh, productive. That remains to be seen. Well, Jeff Sessions says that uh, we're finally going to release fast and furious documents withheld from Congress by Eric Holder, the former attorney general. Better late than never. Ed Morrissey points out, and this is late in more than uh, one sense. Earlier in the day, the Department of Justice announced that it would finally give the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee access to documents related to Operation Fast and Furious. That was, if, as you might recall, <clears throat> excuse me, the bungled ATF program that lost track of thousands of weapons it sent across the border into Mexico. That decision will allow the committee to complete an investigation over a program that was linked to hundreds of deaths, including that of Border Patrol agent Brian Terry. His brother, in response, uh, was delighted that finally some answers might be forthcoming. Today, the Department of Justice, Brian Terry, uh, said entered into a conditional settlement agreement with the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform and will begin to produce additional documents related to Operation Fast and Furious. The conditional settlement agreement filed in federal court in Washington, D.C., would end six years of litigation arising out of the previous administration's refusal to produce documents requested by the committee. In announcing the settlement, the Attorney General Jeff Sessions said, and I quote, the Department of Justice under my watch is committed to transparency and the rule of law. This settlement agree, uh, settlement agreement rather, is an important step to make sure that the public finally receives all the facts related to Operation Fast and Furious. Now, you might recall that former Attorney General Eric Holder famously stonewalled Congress on this very uh, uh, request for documents. So the president, Barack Obama, finally claimed executive privilege, exempted these records from the committee on behalf of the attorney general, which resulted in a contempt charge against Eric Holder that both ignored. Well, that was a breathtakingly uh, arrogant position to have taken. Executive privilege usually only applies to the president, who supposedly knew nothing about Operation Fast and Furious. Now, executive Privilege, you might also recall, is an issue that's being uh, lobbed about around in this ongoing investigation with the Mueller uh, committee. And there are some questions about its use and misuse there as well. But back to Operation Fast and Furious, it also doesn't apply to all uh, on uh, documents dealing, all of the documents dealing with the potentially criminal behavior associated with the project. Other officials had at least um, the very least uh, misled Congress during the testimony and the Oversight Committee had a legitimate claim on those records to pursue those allegations as well as other underlying crimes and malfeasance in the scandal. Presumably that will move forward and those questions will now be uh, answered, although we're talking about Washington. And it's not clear whether or not controversies are ever really thoroughly uh, vetted and uh, cleared up. Well, six years later, they are finally going to get their chance to find out what actually happened with Operation Fast and Furious, which uh, some suspect was transformed by Holder's uh, team into a political operation to argue for more gun control legislation. We can also ask why this wasn't done a year ago. It's not as if uh, Fast and Furious was some obscure story. It was one of the first scandals of the Obama administration, one that the White House and Holder tried very hard to bury. The use of the uh, of the weapons uh, in hundreds of murders should have made uh, this a high priority for Sessions and the new administration when he came into office, especially since he had recused himself from the most high profile investigation in the Department of Justice at the time, the Russia collusion probe. So raises some uh, questions as to why it's taken this long. Nonetheless, those documents will now be made available and perhaps questions finally answered.
15 minutes after 5 o'clock is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, the Good Friday breakfast is coming up on uh, March the 30th at the Oregon Convention Center. Alana Simmons is the speaker. Stay with us and learn more about her and what to expect. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. In 2015, a white supremacist in Charleston, South Carolina, walked into a Bible study and he brutally murdered nine African-American worshipers. Reverend Daniel L. Simmons was among them. He was one of the victims. Following this senseless tragedy, his granddaughter, Ilana Simmons, she became a voice for her family, the congregation, and really for the nation. When she was asked to speak at the bond hearing of the man who massacred her friends and family, she delivered a powerful message that sent ripples across the country. On Friday, March the 30th, Ilana is going to share her moving testimony of God's redemption and forgiveness at the Portland Good Friday Breakfast, sponsored this year by the YMCA of Columbia Willamette, along with other sponsors. It's a delight to have you with us, Alana. We're looking forward to your coming to the Portland area. Welcome. Thank you. Well, first of all, tell us a little bit about your grandfather, Reverend Daniel Simmons, Sr. So uh, my grandfather was a very stern man, but he was also very loving and truly dedicated to his church and to his community. Um, Anyone who uh, knows him and knows him through the church used to refer to him as uh, Super Simmons because he was um, very intentional in everything that he did. And he was a man of his word and he followed through on whatever he said he would do. Now, tell us a little bit about Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, where this shooting took place. Well, I'm originally from Newport News, Virginia, and that is where I grew up. My first introduction to Mother Emanuel in Charleston wasn't actually until the day after the shooting. Mm -hmm. And um, from what I do know about the church, it's a beautiful um, church, and it's a church that has been through a lot over um, the years and has a sense of resiliency, not only in the structure, but in the people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it does have some historic significance beyond the shooting that took place uh, in uh, in 2015. Now, what was your grandfather doing at the time that the Bible study was uh, underway and the shooter was welcomed into the congregation? Was he teaching at the time? Typically, he um, does lead Bible study, but that particular night, he was not. Mm -hmm. He was um, there in support of one of the other people there who was leading Bible study. Now, most of us can't even imagine the horror of learning that a family member has been gunned down in a church in the process of studying God's Word by someone that had been welcomed into the congregation, although this was a predominantly black uh, group of uh, worshipers. He was a Caucasian man. He was welcomed in with open arms to learn that a family member was shot dead under those circumstances is horrifying. Describe for us um, your learning about what had happened and how that rippled through your family. Well, um, when we got the call of what had happened, we weren't um, init- the disclosure that it was a hate crime was not um, immediate for us. And once we found out that it was a hate crime and we got to Charleston and we got to the bond hearing of the shooter, um, it was my first time really communicating with other family members, the people who went to the church and just being in the courtroom that day and um, really seeing the way the families offered forgiveness and salvation. It um, laid on my heart to say what I said, which was, although my grandfather died at the hands of hate, he did live in love and he preached love and his legacy will be love. So hate won't win. 
And that's where um, I started a nonprofit and social media challenge. Well, and it really blew up, I imagine, much bigger than you could have imagined. It involved uh, President and First Lady Obama uh, supporting and and, uh, speaking out on behalf of this response. You were given the opportunity to speak at this bond hearing. How challenging was that for you? And were you surprised to learn how it resonated all across the country? I was. I did not know that I was on TV, uh, to say the least. But um, in learning um, that the word that uh, we shared that day really did change kind of the trajectory of the response of the community, it um, truly was to us an an act of, of grace from God to be able to say, hey, we know that you have been through this much, but I'm going to rally an entire community of people around you to be able to support you so that you can do um, what I've laid on your heart for you to do. You're quoted as saying uh, of your grandfather, he lived in love, he preached love, and although he died at the hands of hate, his legacy will be love. Talk about what hate uh, won't win movement, uh, what the movement was designed to do and how that has impacted communities. So our mission is to advocate for unity through demonstrations of love. And um, our purpose is to create a more culturally cohesive society that uh, really appreciates and celebrates differences instead of allowing them to divide us. Um, We work in several different, uh, through several different initiatives, and uh, we have a lot of different values, nine, as a matter of fact, for the nine people who passed away and five for the five survivors, but um, five initiatives, rather, for the five survivors. And um, the work that we're doing is somewhat unique to what you see a lot of organizations Mm -hmm. doing. So um, I'm excited to come to Portland and share with the participants of the Good Friday Breakfast what it is that we're doing and how they can get involved. Well, and I love how consistent your testimony is with what Christ did for us on that day in laying his life down on our behalf and giving us not only the capacity to receive his salvation and to be reconciled with God, but to be reconciled to others as well. And you really demonstrated that day, as did others, the grace of God, not only being lavished on you, but being poured out to others who, like ourselves, are unworthy. Now, we're talking about the uh, Portland Good Friday breakfast that's coming up, of course, on Good Friday, which this year is March the 30th. And as in previous years, it's going to be at the Oregon Convention Center. Uh, this year is a little bit different in that the YMCA is going to be uh, the sponsor along with some other, they're the title sponsor along with some others. And we want to encourage you to be a part of this tremendous opportunity to come together uh, and to worship as we reflect on the sacrifice that Christ made for us. Uh, You can go to the Portland Good Friday Breakfast website and purchase your tickets there. Of course, it's a breakfast, so you have an opportunity to fellowship around the table, enjoy a great meal, and to hear a a tremendous testimony from a young woman whose wisdom and uh, influence has exceeded her years. Have you had uh, lots of opportunities um, to share your testimony as a consequence of the events that took place back in uh, 2015? Actually, I have. Um, Prior to all of what I'm doing now, I I was teacher. And um, since then, the work that I've been doing with the Hate Won't Win movement has uh, been so moving and so powerful that I've been pretty much all over the country um, consistently for the last two in a little over a half years. 
Well, I, I appreciate the organization that you have founded, which uh, was uh, intended to honor the legacy of your grandfather and those whose lives were taken so brutally on that day in uh, 2015. And we're grateful that you're going to bring your testimony here to the Portland area to challenge us to do likewise. And I know one of the things that you encourage uh, people who are part of uh, this effort to do is to to demonstrate an act of love to someone who is different from yourself, someone of a different race or religion, economic class, age, etc., uh, and to post a, a picture or a video to your social media page with the hashtag hate won't win, uh, challenging at least three peoples to do the same, sort of like that bucket challenge we saw some years ago. Were people responding and mm-hmm. are people still responding to that uh, that challenge? Um, initially, people were very responsive. Um, we had people from all over the world mm-hmm. um, who were taking the Hate What Win Challenge into their communities, into their homes, into their businesses. Um, since then, we have seen um, somewhat of a teeter-totter and people, a surge of people, you know, going out and participating and then kind of people getting consumed in other things and going back and forth. And honestly, it really does sometimes depends on what's going on in their lives. But what we want to do is to make this a a lifestyle. Um, And so we want to continue to encourage people to participate. And um, everywhere that I go, I try to encourage people to continue to participate in the Hate Won't Win Challenge so that it becomes less of a challenge and more of a habit. Yeah, yeah, just a, a natural response in life. Well, Alana, we are so delighted that you have agreed to come and bless us here in the Portland area. We're looking forward to it. And thank you for taking time to talk with me here today. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. Again, Good Friday is coming up on the 30th of March. Uh, The event, like uh, previous years, is at the Oregon Convention Center. You'll enjoy a wonderful breakfast, a time of fellowship, and a strong testimony of God's redemption and forgiveness with uh, our special guest, Ilana Simpson, or Simmons, rather. You can go to the uh, webpage for the Portland Good Friday Breakfast for more uh, details and to sign up. Bring someone with you. It's a great chance to bring a coworker, a a friend, a, a neighbor a family member, whomever, uh, this is going to be an event that will challenge all of us to draw nearer to Christ and for those who don't know him to uh, to get to know him. So that's uh, that's coming up. We're looking forward to it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Amy Vinzel. She's the principal at Columbia Christian School. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. About 37 minutes after 5 o'clock is our time. Now, we here at KPDQ are delighted that uh, during this season, we partner with some of the finest Christian schools in the country. And today we're going to focus our attention on Columbia Christian School. It's set on a beautiful 13-acre campus located in northeast Portland, just off the I-84, I-205 interchange. And they seek to provide a Christ-centered education that's focused on excellence, not just in faith, not just in academics, but also in character. Here to talk with us more about that and uh, to let you know that there are discounts being offered by many of the schools at this time that you can check out at uh, listenersavings.com is Amy Vinzel. She is the principal at Columbia Christian School. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I know that on a Thursday afternoon, you've had a hard, long day of uh, teaching kids, uh, so we appreciate your taking the time. Now, tell our listeners who are not familiar with Columbia Christian a little about the school and its history. Well, Columbia uh, just celebrated its 70, 70th year uh, reunion this last summer, so we had a um, big gathering on our campus this past summer in celebrating 70 years 
of education, which is a big feat and so encouraging to bring back mm-hmm. alumni that have been a part of our school. And um, we work really hard in um, trying to provide a culture where we can nurture young people, um, as you said, in faith, character, and academics. Well, and I, I um, spent some time studying a little bit about the uh, the staff and faculty, and these are these are men and women who are committed to teaching young people by example as well as by rigorous academic uh, training with a Bible open uh, throughout the school day. Yes, absolutely. I was just sharing today um, with our president, who's off at a conference. Um, our high school chapel today was uh, quite moving for me in that we have um, had a guest speaker come on, and as we're leading these young people in worship, um, our student life director asked kids if they felt so compelled, if they were ready to stand on Christ alone, would they please stand while we read while we led this song? And it was so powerful, Georgine, to see these kids um, from all different backgrounds and international students stand up and sing this song, Christ Alone, hmm. and to claim that Christ, yes, is the one I'm going to stand on. We should mention that um, uh, that Columbia is uh, a... Uh kindergarten through 12th grade school. It's accredited um, by, uh, has two accreditations and Mm -hmm. um, has been training young people, as you pointed out, for decades in our community. Yes. And, um, you know, I, I love being a part of ACSI and have served on several accreditation teams. So going into Christian schools and encouraging them and affirming their mission, um, it is it is encouraging and um, and really a testimony to the sister Christian schools that are really just joining hands and all we're all trying to do the very same thing and in sharing Christ with these kids and um, you know you have to work really hard because you have to align yourself with uh, rigorous uh, academics and um, trying to instill in kids um, a desire and an excitement and really a motivation. Um, to work hard for the things that they want to accomplish. Yeah. We're talking about Columbia Christian School, located on a beautiful 13-acre campus located in Northeast Portland, and again, kindergarten through high school. I know that sometimes when a parent decides we want to pursue private Christian education, Mm -hmm. critics will say, yeah, but they're going to miss out on opportunities that only public school can afford. Talk a a little bit about some of the extracurricular activities that uh, students at Columbia Christian can enjoy. Yeah. So um, Columbia just came home this weekend from Pendleton, Oregon, with a two-way basketball state championship. Ah, congratulations. Quite, <laughs> yes, quite quite an exciting weekend in Pendleton. Um, so we work really hard to provide for kids opportunities um, that partner with our mission. And so sports for all ages, we're getting ready to host our annual um, sport uh, soccer camp through the springtime, and our athletic director, Bart Valentine, will gear that up. And so for the little ones, we have um, soccer and basketball programs, and then our organized sports programs start in the fifth and sixth grade. So there's competitive soccer and volleyball and basketball. Track season is underway. 
Uh, we also also have a great golf team for our high school kids, and then just encouraging kids also to be involved in their uh, area churches youth groups and uh, find ways to serve. So we try to provide lots of opportunities of service as well. For listeners who are interested in learning more about Columbia Christian School, again, located Northeast 91st mm-hmm. Avenue in Portland, what's the best way for to do that? Uh, geographically, <laughs> geographically, really conveniently located right off of the I-84-205 interchange. We sit between Gleason and Burnside. There's actually two entrances to our campus, and we're happy to talk with anybody who's interested in Columbia, and Carrie Root is our admissions officer, and she is happy to welcome families in, into our community. Uh, you also have a website that's very informative. There you can find a statement mm-hmm. of faith, a mission statement, a little bit mm-hmm. of the history of the school, something of the faculty, the educational philosophy, and so on. It's a great way to uh, have that first introduction before you have that face-to-face. And if I'm not mistaken, please correct me if I'm wrong, the website is CCS at ColumbiaChristian.com. Correct, yes. That is correct. Okay, CCS at ColumbiaChristian.com. Well, I just want to commend you and the staff and faculty at Columbia Christian that have served this community so well and helped to to establish young people in their faith, to teach them and train them well. That's a gift to the community because these young children who start out perhaps in kindergarten uh, make their way right up through high school. They become uh, productive parts of our community, and they they have a strong foundation in their faith, and that we all benefit from. from that commitment. So thank you for your commitment to Christian education and to this community. Thank you so much. I appreciate so much, and God bless you. And I really want to encourage our listeners to consider Columbia Christian School. Again, they're located on Northeast 91st Avenue. Uh, Columbia's beautiful 13-acre campus is located in Northeast Portland, just off the I-84, I-205 interchange. And if you are looking for a Christ-centered education focused on excellence in faith, character, and academics, Columbia Christian is a school you should consider. Hey, Principal, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. much. Again, Amy Benzel, Principal of Columbia Christian School. And check out listenersavings.com for more information. Uh, Columbia Christian and other schools are offering discounts on their tuition for up to 40%. So check that out. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. And again, really want to encourage you to check out our website, listenersavings.com, for more information about Columbia Christian Schools and other schools you're going to be hearing here on the Georgine Rice Show in the weeks ahead. Well, Facebook is under fire. They've been asking users whether pedophiles should be able to proposition underage girls for sexually explicit explicit photographs on the giant social network. Now, I don't know who thought it was a good idea to pose this question to anyone as if there was any question about what an appropriate answer would be. But the survey is the latest in a series of missteps by the Silicon Valley company. It's been criticized for allowing content that exploits children. And this is just the latest example from violence on its live streaming service to hate speech to divisive messages sent by Russian operatives trying to meddle in the U.S. presidential election. Toxic content has been flowing through the uh, platform it's a heightened scrutiny of uh, Facebook. Now, some of that's very challenging and difficult to uh, to uh, weed out. But to sponsor a survey that asks a question like this, well, they take full responsibility uh, and bear full responsibility for that. Well, Facebook did scrap the survey. It posed the question about teens being groomed by older men after it was spotted by media outlets here in the uh, in the um 
uh, United States and the United Kingdom. It now says the survey could have been better designed. (laughs) Could have been. Wow. Well, the company routinely uses surveys to get feedback from the social networks, more than 2 billion users, and that's with a B. Uh, More recently, Facebook has been relying on um, user surveys to take their pulse on everything from fake news epidemic to whether Facebook makes them happy as people have stopped spending as much time there for reasons perhaps that reflect the Surveys that are entirely inappropriate. But the two questions in Sunday's survey shocked and angered Facebook users, and rightly so. In thinking about an idea, uh, an ideal world where you could set Facebook's policies, how would you handle the following? A private message in which an adult man asks a 14-year-old girl for sexual pictures, Facebook asked. Well, sexual contact with uh, minors online, part of a grooming process in which adults seek to gain trust and lower inhibition, is often a precursor to sexual abuse. The possible responses Facebook offered to the question ranged from, and this was multiple choice, this content should not be allowed on Facebook, duh, would have been the answer there, and no one should be able to see it, uh, to this content should be allowed on Facebook and I would not mind seeing it. Another question asked, who should decide whether an adult man can ask for sexual pictures on Facebook with options ranging from Facebook users decide the rules by voting and tell Facebook to Facebook decides the rules on its own. Jonathan Haynes, who's a digital editor at The Guardian newspaper, tweeted, I'm like, uh, wait, uh, Facebook is making it secret, the best Facebook can offer here. Uh, Well, he uses kind of slang language. I'm not even going to try to read it all. But anyway, that was a mistake, he went on to say. The vice president of uh, uh, product at Facebook responded, we run uh, surveys to understand how the community thinks about how we set policies, he wrote on Twitter. Uh, But this kind of activity is and will always be completely unacceptable on Facebook. We regularly work with authorities in identifying uh, offenders. Uh, if identified. It shouldn't have uh, been part of this survey. Again, the answer is duh. It's hard to believe that Facebook could be so utterly tone deaf when it comes to this issue. Diana Graber, who's the founder of Cyber Civics and CyberWise, they teach digital literacy to kids and parents. The fact that Facebook would even pose this question theoretically is disgusting and certainly inappropriate. In a statement, Facebook said the survey referred to offensive content that is already prohibited on Facebook and that we have no intention of allowing, which makes the question entirely nonsense. Stacy Steinberg, a law professor at the University of Florida and author of Sharenting, Children's Privacy in an Age of Social Media, says the Facebook survey sent a terrible message and, worse yet, normalizes predatory behavior. Well, Facebook shouldn't be asked, or rather asking users whether such behavior is acceptable. It should be educating families on the risks posed by online predators. Working with law enforcement is an important first step, but Facebook can do even more. Instead of asking questions such as the ones posed in this survey, Facebook can use its reach to help families and victims. Steinberg went on. Uh, went on to say in response to uh, the survey, digital citizenship expert and technology ethicist David Ryan Polger uh, chalks up the uh, flap over the survey to massive growing pains at Facebook as they're wrestling with its social responsibility. The misstep with the survey seems to be a situation of good intentions, although I've had a hard time finding them, that did not fully appreciate the rightful anger and frustration the general public feels toward the current online environment, he said. International attention to how pedophile 
profiles use social media to target and prey on children has grown in recent years. Apparently, Facebook didn't entirely notice it. An investigation by the BBC in 2016 uncovered numerous private Facebook groups by and for men with sexual interest in children to share images with run uh, one rather one uh, run by a convicted pedophile. Photos of children taken from their parents' Facebook accounts have also been found on these sites. So parents beware of what you're posting and how they might be misused by others. Facebook faced criticism again in uh, 2017 when the BBC flagged dozens of images and pages containing child pornography. Of the 100 reported images, 18 were removed by uh, Facebook, rather, according to the BBC. At the time, they said Facebook asked to be sent examples of the images and then reported the broadcaster to the Child Exploitation Unit in Britain's National Crime Agency, at least 18 of the 100. Verified uh, child sex abuse uh, are sent to the U.S. National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and other like-minded organizations that work with law enforcement to find offenders. Facebook also combats the spread of child pornography with technology that detects and blocks content from being uploaded. We have prohibited child grooming on Facebook since our earliest days, the company said. We have no intention of changing this, and we regularly work with police to ensure that anyone found acting in such a way is brought to justice. Well, one would certainly hope so, and it's unfortunate that this question somehow made it onto their uh, weekly survey, uh, giving the impression, uh, rightly or not, that uh, Facebook would consider making that kind of accommodation. Well, today being Thursday, tomorrow is Friday, and uh, on Fridays we tend to lighten up and focus on uh, the uh, content that's more lighthearted in the uh, in the metro area. So we're looking forward to, uh, not the metro area, around the world, and we're looking forward to uh, shifting our gaze just a bit as we anticipate uh, the weekend. Also want to remind you that tomorrow is um, uh, the Michael Allen Harrison Benefit Concert for our good friends at StandUpGirl.com. That's it, can be. Uh, your tickets must be purchased ahead of time, so let me encourage you to go online to StandUpGirlFoundation.org slash concert. Uh, space is limited. Tickets, as I mentioned, must be purchased in advance, we're being told. For information, you can also call them at 503-304-1531. But that's a benefit concert. Uh, music Up to the Heart featuring Michael Allen Harrison f- this Friday, 7 p.m., Canby Chapel. Uh, in Canby. And uh, finally, just want to remind you that we also have an opportunity for those of you who are looking for a good laugh. There's a clean comedy night at East Hill Church this uh, this Saturday, sponsored by our sister station, 1041 The Fish and KPDQ. It's a night of clean comedy with Johnny W. With his own mix of musical chops, offbeat stand-up, Johnny W. is going to bring a hilarious comedy experience to your whole family. It's happening Saturday, uh, this coming at East Hill Church in Gresham. You can find out more at kpdq.com or through the KPDQ mobile app. Finally, as you um, maybe uh, had the opportunity to hear my conversation with the principal uh, from one of our uh, fabulous Christian schools in the area, today was Columbia Christian School. We spoke with the principal, but there are a number of schools in our community that during this season are offering tuition discounts, and we want to encourage you to take full advantage of the opportunity to save up to 40% off Uh, tuition. You can find out more about Columbia Christian and a whole host of other schools in our community in the metro area uh, at kpdq.com or listenersavings.com. Christian education is possible and at some savings during this season, so you can save up to 40% on tuition. Uh, Cornerstone Christian School, Valor Christian School, North Clackamas, Pilgrim, 
Uh, we have a Holy Cross Catholic School, Guardy Christian School, Grace Lutheran, and many others, including Columbia Christian. So check out listenersavings.com for more information on that. All right. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.